And before we dive into this week's episode, I have one last request for you. You won't be hearing it again on the podcast. But did you know that Freelance Pod has its first live recording this Saturday at the London Podcast Festival? It's at 2pm on Saturday the 7th at King's Place in King's Cross. There are still some tickets available and they're £9.50, so under a tenner. And you can come along and see the podcast being recorded in real time. I'm going to be speaking to Syrian refugee, stand-up comic and academic Abdul Tahan, who you're going to hear in just a minute because he's been on an earlier episode of Freelance Pod. And we won't just be talking about his journey from Syria and how he's found settling into British life, but we'll also have um, some of his stand-up and some quizzes, particularly from the Life in the UK test book, which is full of very strange questions. There are going to be some prizes... Um, there's just there's a whole lot going on so not just audio but it'll be visual and interactive and a whole lot of fun so I'd love to see you there tickets are still available from the King's Place website and just to get you really excited here's a little bit of Abdul from his episode Being a Refugee is a Dream Come True Note Sarcasm Ramesh was very uh, supportive so uh, when I asked him about giving me some tips said well you know um with writing comedy uh, you know you write something and you try it out and it comes with experience just try to be who you are um try to be yourself i was like trying to be myself is not legal sometimes here <laughs> um for example um you can't really um come here for example uh, a lot of people from my country get married get, have four wives so you can't really be yourself in here. It's illegal to have four wives. Uh, again, this is all uh, stereotyping people. So I would say this joke on the stage um, because I find it funny. People tell it to be yourself, but you can't really be yourself. But Ramesh was, he was very humble. Uh, he was funny. And he's the same person on stage and off stage. If you'd like to hear more from Abdul Tahan, come along and see him interviewed on stage by me at the London Podcast Festival live recording of Freelance Pod. It's happening on Saturday the 7th of September at 2pm. The venue is King's Place, King's Cross, and you can buy tickets for under a tenner at www.kingsplace.co.uk forward slash what's dash on forward slash words forward slash freelance dash pod. You can also find out more about the London Podcast Festival on Twitter at London Podfest or one word. Let me know if you're coming along to my live recording. I'd love to see you there. On to this week's episode. You know, we've done a lot of data around how many times you have to hit a paywall before you'll realise that you've done it a lot of times and it might be worth subscribing. Um, And is that different when you come from Twitter? Is it different when you come from Facebook? Like, what are the the pathways and triggers in in a data sense around how you're making your journey to a subscription and then are you starting a trial or are you, are you dropping off after 30 days or are you staying a year that's quite a lot it's a big old data set here and um, how useful is facebook these days first for news and for telegraph um i think facebook has got a lot to answer hello and welcome to freelance pod my name's Chandrika Chakrabarti, and I'll be your host. FreelancePod tells stories about creativity and the digital revolution. 
I've been a journalist for 13 years now and a podcaster for nearly two, so I've seen a lot of the changes that digital has brought to the media. I've also trained a lot of people on how to deal with all these changes. I'm now freelance and juggle a number of jobs myself, writing for different audiences, making audio, teaching, speaking, presenting. It's a classic portfolio digital career. On each episode of this podcast, I ask a person who works in a creative field to tell me about how the internet has transformed or invented their job. From Twitter's director of curation to Ed Miliband's podcast producer, along with a few appearances from some guy called Charlie Brooker, we've been hearing brilliant stories about how the internet has revolutionised work and, well, our lives. If you enjoy the podcast, please do rate, review and subscribe over on Apple Podcasts and why not tell a friend too? This helps our community grow and that enables me to keep making FreelancePod. You can also sign up for the FreelancePod newsletter, which comes out every time there's a new episode, which is about every week. You can find the newsletter at sachandrika.substack.com. Sachandrika is spelt S-U-C-H-A-N-D-R-I-K-A. So that's sachandrika.substack.com. The podcast is also on social, of course. And I do love hearing from you, so feel free to get in touch. You can find it on Twitter at freelance underscore pod underscore. It's on Instagram at freelance pod, all one word. There's also a Facebook group. Just search for freelance pod. The podcast isn't officially on LinkedIn, but you can find me on there too. I'm Sachandrika Chakrabarti, and I do share all that juicy freelance pod content on there. So on to this week's guest. I'm Beth Ashton, I'm Head of Social at The Telegraph. I just think the days of waking up and deciding what you want to write about and that being commissioned, if they're not already over, definitely should be. And that is a huge leap from papers, actually. That can be quite tough. Um, Have you found in any of your jobs, you have a teaching role as well as working in social, like letting people know you have um, a lot of data and a lot of knowledge of what people are reading and what they're talking about at your fingertips. Yeah, and I think you end up with a demonstrable argument. So it's a really good example of um, it being, I was going to say one paper that I worked at, but I've only worked on one of the papers. So in Manchester, um, kind of ordering all the content and seeing what people weren't reading as well as what they were and noticing that, the big bulk of that was charity stories and you know you try going into a newsroom and saying I know these people are your contacts and I know you really like them but no unless it's got a good story behind it no more charity stories you know nobody's bothered about the balloon race nobody's bothered about the thing that's happening what they're bothered about is either the why like who's this for what is their story or they're not bothered at all and they're just not reading them so a lot of the kind of contact pleaser stuff definitely massively and I'm sure it's happened everywhere cut down on um, it's it, unless it's got a good story behind it it's not being read and it's so important now to maximize your time you know I'm, I'm writing this and it's going to take me this amount of time and this amount of people are going to read it you know making those kind of calculations all the time in newsrooms um, and as well as sort of getting rid of some of the stuff that doesn't work, it allows you to spend a really long time on things that you know will definitely work because you've got data behind you that's that's saying, well, our audience like this, 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 and this. Therefore, 
if we make a beautiful long read on this, the chances are they're probably going to read it and therefore it's worth taking a week of my time rather than kind of taking all that time and then it not working out. And it's a case of looking at something like the Expenses podcast and thinking, well, this is going to do well. No one else has done it. It did do well. And what can we write around it to help other people discover it and to capitalise on the fact that this subject is interesting people. The Telegraph own that subject, really. Mm-hmm. And to make it in one format and then see where you can reuse that investigation and that those facts and all the manpower and, and the labour that's been put in to make it into another format and sort of have that audience too. Do you, do you find you're sort of doing that here? Yeah, definitely. I think it's sort of a nod to how we use evergreen content. You know, on social, we try to make stories as evergreen as they can be so that we can use them every weekend. It's, you know, sort of a tale of as old as time, but basically it ain't old till it's told. Like, until everyone has read this story, you've still got an audience for it. And the MP's expenses is definitely one of those things where um, you know that there's going to be a big interest in it. There still is 10 years on and there has been for 10 years. Um, What do you think is it about those stories that still hold us now 10 years on? Is there anything for you that's like details that jump out at you? And do you think it's particularly social stories as well? Do you think they work on social? I think it's kind of, (laughs) <laughs> there are motion right, sensor right. lights in this room we're in <laughs> they've just gone off it's more weird for other people who can see yeah. us like we're in the dark we're in the dark um <laughs> yeah stories like that i think you know it's um the kind of wrongdoing and downfall of people in power and that's always really compelling um that it took a lot to get across the line and being able to tell that story i think this year has been really important um because obviously at the time that you're breaking a story like that, and I wasn't here, I was 18, I don't know what I was doing, but definitely wasn't anywhere near here. Um, you heard the words duck house probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I definitely, definitely uh, came into my life, but I think, um, you know, at that point you can't tell the story behind it because you're not, that's not your story to tell. Whereas 10 years on, I guess you can really take stock of that. And a lot of people here are, really still super proud of that they should be Um, yeah just getting that across the line and all the work that it took and it's nice to give people an insight i think into um how things like that work particularly in an era of fake news and you know everyone's got an opinion everyone can write everyone can access the internet and it's nice to be able to say hey if you want to really nail an investigation this is what it takes i think that's a really important message especially for right now yeah, I agree. Um, and I think making the workings of the media transparent is so important. I've only started to realise quite recently how like the media set its own rules and its own distribution and everything. We have like a language and people outside are like, what do these things mean? Mm. But actually what it's taught us in terms of how to communicate, other people can learn that. But um, yeah, should we go back to starting at the MEN then? What, <laughs> yeah. what, was it, what was it like starting at the MEN? Well, it was my first newsroom, so I didn't really have anything to compare it to. I remember being very nervous. Um, I was going from a social media executive job to a social media editor job. I was going to be their first one. Um, I didn't 
really know what I would be like. You, you were the first social media editor at the MEN. Yeah. So, which year, do you remember which year that? Uh, Ish, 2014, 14. I think it was. But yeah, it was our first social editor. And I just didn't know what to expect. I was worried. I, I, I knew that, you know, that I really wanted to be in a newsroom. The reason I did it at that point is because I obviously had studied journalism and I knew that if I'd sort of taken more than a year out from kind of getting that MA, that it would be more and more difficult to get back in. So I just sort of went for it. And it was... It was scary, and um, I remember that. And I remember when I left, actually, them saying how quiet I was when I got when I got there. I'm naturally quite shy, and um, you know, prospect is work with these journalists who have been doing it for 34 years longer than you. Your how old was I? 23. Um, made them listen to you, and it was it was it was absolutely terrifying. Yeah, um, and then. What was the reception like? And I think especially as well as a woman, because often a newspaper newsroom is really male. It's mm. just the nature of the industry. And so often it is really young women saying, why right, social media is giving me all this information, actually, let's let's think about things differently. Mm. And what, like, were they as scary as did? Um, it, yes and no. So we were really lucky in Manchester because we had... Sarah Lester is a digital editor who's absolutely brilliant and really believed, although they hadn't started doing social properly, could see the potential of it and, and could see the potential in me. And that was really, really nice. And then we had a, a female news editor, Lisa Rowland, who's still one of the funniest people I've ever met. And so you had these two really powerful women that was, that made it a, a nice and probably unusual for a newsroom like that environment to walk into and it was one under which I definitely thrived because of that um, and there were some nice men around too but there were definitely like these these two senior women who especially for someone like Lisa who had really smashed the glass ceiling you know uh, has has like weathered all of the storms of white male newsrooms and she was, was the first in everything first woman yeah, everything. yeah 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 mm. absolutely brilliant um, so it was good in that way. I don't know how seriously people took social until the Manchester Dogs home burned down. Um, so when the Manchester Dogs home burned down, um, I'd forgotten my laptop and Sarah Lester rang me and said, this has happened, you know, we need to do something about it on social. And uh, I sort of said, well, I've left my laptop at work and I had to borrow someone else's and it was, it was a whole thing. Um, and people started saying, you know, I think the fire service had blocked the roads. Um, people were taking dog food, dog beds, like like everything down. It was so sweet. There were so many people, story, yeah, it? that it had blocked the roads, and the fire service had stopped coming down. And um, and so people started to tweet. Only a couple, like two or three, saying, "I really want to help. How do I help?" And it rang Sarah Lester back and said. I think we should set up a just giving page so um so we can sort of give them somewhere to go if they want to help. Um and she had to get in touch with the editor, but I'd already made it and done it all by that point and, and got it out the door pretty quick. Um and I was going to bed that night and I think we'd raised about thirty five thousand pounds. It only happened about ten o'clock. So that must have been about twelve. I kept refreshing, kept refreshing, kept refreshing. And I went into work the next day and it had just blown up. Like all the celebrities that had shared it. Um, 
by the end of, I think, 20, 24 hours, we raised a million. I think it was the quickest million that Just Given had ever raised. And so actually walking into work that next day, it was a completely different vibe. Like it was a real moment. It was like, wow, this is what it can do. This is obviously a massively powerful tool. We all want a bit of it. Like how, like, how are we going to get involved? And that was a real moment, you know, like just from then on, everyone could see the power of it. And that was really, really important. If that hadn't happened, I just think that whole, you know, as you say, teaching and learning journey would have been so long. Also, often the best way to get through to journalists is what works for a normal person, a big story. Yeah. There's a big story that happened to them and they were like, I don't understand the inner workings of it. Please tell me. And you yeah. were like, okay, let's do wow. And what helped with that was definitely that, so we got some great stories. The people on the ground got great stories, you know, people who'd gone in and rescued dogs and we were first with them and that sort of that fueled the campaign in you know when these stories start coming out so it's not kind of just a one hit and then like there you go you continue it with the journalism with getting those things out there on social and and what having those journalists watch what the correlation is between kind of people reading their stories and an action is really really important you hardly ever get that as a thing that you can quantify less so like on a sort of counter where it's going up to a percentage so almost it's, live yeah, yeah yeah exactly that it's interesting what you said about charity and charity stories charity in itself and like doing good is more that readers on digital want to be part of the doing good as opposed to just reading it but they have to be sufficiently mm. moved to make the action and when they do it's that avalanche yeah and i think you know, I remember coming into work the next day and someone saying, oh, if it had been people, that wouldn't be the same response. And, you know, is that true? Possibly. I don't, I don't know. Who, who can say? But there was definitely an emotional, this like emotional connection with dogs and like what they mean to people and how everyone's got one as part of the family and the defenselessness of it. And all of those things came together. But more than that, I think I'm convinced that it's about allowing people to do the thing that they want to do. So someone rang me a few weeks later and, and they wanted to start a campaign about um, something and they'd asked me for advice for it. And I said, well, has anyone kind of shown an interest in having this thing happen? And the answer was no. And if the answer is no, it's not going to get off the ground. Like you want things on an upward trajectory, but you also need to empower people to do things. And it's not just me saying waking up one morning and saying, oh, I think we should have a statue of Beth outside the newsroom. Like, it's not like that. You, you All you're doing is taking... That's why we're doing this podcast. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if anyone would like to. Um, but it, it's about taking what people want to do and what your audience wants and making that happen. That's, that, that's a, a real gift on social of local and regional and any newspaper, but particularly in those areas I think um, on social definitely and it's such a boost if you're finding communities forming around an interest because they, they've been so motivated to go to the internet and to either join a group or set it up mm. and to talk about it that you already know well, there's something happening here that's how I came up with the Black Mirror podcast mm. it's I thought a bit along social lines and along what stats I'd got on a story like if people are literally talking about it on Reddit, talking about it, then they might want 
the podcast because there isn't one of those yet. And the other, the featurey type journalism, mm. that's, that is how you have to think of ideas. Like what is actually, what are people interested in? Yeah. What they move to actually talk about or do something about. And, but actually, but with news, you can move people to want to do something. It's the helplessness thing. Yeah, I think so. And then, you know, we were able to, a few years later, in the wake of the Manchester bomb, kind of replicate that activity, essentially, and, you know, raise what's now millions for the families. And that was kind of a, a very similar thing, except that, you know, the feeling was that everyone just wanted to do, everyone, you know, the audience then felt helpless and wanted to kind of, channel that in a way that was useful and helpful for the families and donating to that fund was one way to do it what was that day like the day of the manchester bombing oh it's crazy um i was i, I li- lived not far from the arena so i've heard a noise that was like a just like a firework and i was sort of um sat in bed and then sarah lester rang me and said something's something's gone 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 down I don't know what it is. And I said, oh, can I do it from home? I must have been really tired. Um, and she said, no, I, I do think you should come in. And at that point, we sort of didn't, there was so much, um, so much on social media that wasn't true. Having to, at that time, a, a lot later than 2014, um, having to sort through the noise of what was true and what wasn't was a really difficult task. So, we knew that people were missing. We sort of we were able to start building a list of miss, missing people almost entirely from social, from people getting in touch with us and saying this person's missing, this person's missing, last seen here. We you know we're tweeting out if you lost go here, if you've lost someone go here. Trying to just in that moment trying to be as useful as possible. And one thing we did that we'd never done before was put out a tweet that said. But we know all these rumors. There was, there was rumors that it was just like a speaker blowing or it was, you know, a, a lot of balloons or, or a lot of different rumors, a lot of photos coming out that we didn't know if they were real or they were fake. We put out a tweet saying, we're in Manchester. At this point, it's international news. We don't know. We're speaking to the cops and we don't know. It, when we know, we'll let you know. But at the moment, you can't really trust anything that you're reading here. That was when the American journalists start picking up those tweets and saying, look, they're in Manchester, you should listen to what they're saying. Um, and that gave us a lot of kind of gravitas in terms of reporting the story. But also, you know, we uh, started a missing in Manchester hashtag and you could, um, you know, add people to that. Um, and then we started sort of getting the names in of the people that had died. And as a consequence of being the paper that was trying to find the people who were missing, a lot of those families talked talked to us and no one else because you know they're from the beginning trying to help. And we were where it's not a it's not a callous act. Like everyone in that newsroom that night was completely devastated. You know, we worked from kind of whatever it was, ten o'clock to basically the next day and the next day. You know, had to call him back up from local newspapers, everyone was really, really upset. And I think that, you know, we didn't need to try to be authentic because 
we were really heartbroken about it. We were, you know, cared a lot about the people in the city and being able to convey that in an authentic way that's not cheesy and it's not corny and it's not forced. It was kind of easy for us at the time, but, but, um, it, it definitely is difficult. It's a difficult kind of tone on social to, to get right, I think. Um, but hopefully we helped, we helped some people. I remember the next day we'd been caught out by someone who hadn't been missing and it was just like a hoax. And it, it's difficult, isn't it? Cause like, yeah, it's fake news, but ultimately was it better to assume that it was real? Probably like in when you've got 22 people missing, you, you have to put that on the person who's done it in the first place. So, you know, I'm okay with the fact that one person caught us out because while I guess we spread fake news for a time, in the long run, it was worth giving them the benefit of doubt. It was a really, it was a really dark time, but out of it, some really, really beautiful and moving things. And the, you know, being able to capture the response of the city. And you know, I remember it was when everyone was doing 360 videos and sort of went to um, Tenan Square where all the flowers had been put, and being able to bring the world into that. Um, and at Facebook Live, we did kind of the march from a mosque into Manchester and being on that march, like being that window for the world into what was happening in Manchester, using all of those different things was, was a, a really, um, I don't want to say good, but definitely felt like we were doing something that could show the world that that's not what Manchester's like. And that was really important to everyone in that newsroom. That was Reach PLC's most watched Facebook Live, I think. You can probably imagine it still is. It was crazy. And you know what? I think um, the person who took that didn't even work in our newsroom. Well, just jump in here because she really deserves a mention. Um, The lady we're talking about is Beth Lodge. And she was working at the Teesside Gazette, and she still does. And she went up to help the Manchester Evening News during this terrible time. And it was Beth's Facebook Live that drew in just a ridiculous number of viewers. And um, I've been lucky enough to train Beth and have her explain to the the people being trained how she did her Facebook Live. And also I've used her video in lots of training back when I was working at Reach PLC. She just come down to like give us a hand with anything that we needed. And so many of them at Reach were so good, you know. Their editors said, does anyone want to go and help in Manchester? And it was literally like, hands up. Like, everyone wanted to come and help. What does that say about that? I think that's brilliant. There were just so many hands up. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's brilliant, I think. I think that's just a testament to not just how much local news isn't dying, but how much, the you know, the people in it are not just, you know, sitting there waiting to retire. Like, there's some really good motivated a lot of really good motivated people in local and regional news it's about feeling close to the community and i think that's a different thing in a regional paper but this this makes the newsroom feel closer to the readers and the readers feel closer to the newsroom mm. do you think that's a big difference then coming to a national that the community isn't geographically based it might be sort of interest different interest based groups yeah but it's it's hard to have that sense of we're all in one city like manchester yeah, I mean, different things. Manchester's got a tone and then like a bit of sass about it. And if you're from there, which I'm not, I'm from Wigan, but near enough, 
um, you can get the humor and you can have a lot of good engagement with the people who are commenting. And, you know, we always replied to every message that we got, which is a huge thing. It would just not be possible to do that here. And you're right, not having that common thread, and it's particularly prevalent in Manchester and Liverpool as well. You know, you, you find that anywhere with a strong identity, if that is the thread that's running through you, it's a bit easier to capture because, you know, people will come into the Telegraph for whatever it is, cars, fashion, Bryony Gordon, news, politics, there, there's a lot of kind of subgroups that make this up and then you take a sport reader who might be entirely different to all of those things you know they basically buy the paper and throw off their way keep the sports section so you know what are you trying to strike the right tone with all of those people at once it's really really difficult i think easier to be more playful the more you break it down so one of the first things I did when I got here was all of the best performing Instagram posts were of the royal family. So we just made Telegraph Royals because that was like an obvious thing that was going to work. And, you know, then you can start saying, okay, this is what this looks like. And actually it doesn't have to follow the tone exactly of the main Telegraph account or the politics account. It can be, you know, a little bit more playful, and 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 the more you you know, if you look at f- our fashion Instagram account, that is like you know, it's a lot more jokey. There's a lot of memes on there. It's kind of a different kind of audience. So yeah, it's definitely because you haven't got that strong identity. It's definitely quite a bit harder to get a tone right. Is there the way that people don't want to buy any news brand wholesale? They want to pick the bits they want from it and enjoy those and i think that makes it it makes it it's great for the reader because they can then pick different bits from everywhere but it makes it hard for the newsroom to think what's our identity on each of these platforms mm. well, it falls to you really i suppose mm. and i think you touched on something really important which is if you look at what sky have done with now tv and how you can stack those subscriptions. I really think that that is what we'll all end up doing. Like, okay, I get my sport from the Telegraph, you know, I get my opinion from wherever. All of these kind of, you know, micro stackable sections. Um, I, I think that's how we'll, we'll do our news in the future. So what's Sky doing then? What's, what they do now TV? Just so they, um, so they've split off. You can subscribe to Sky Sports. You can get an entertainment pass. You can get a movies pass. You know, you can kind of, I think, I think one of them now has got a partnership where you just get reality TV. So you literally, instead of having, paying a hundred pounds for a Sky package, you're choosing the bit that you want from it. And that is your subscription to, you know, entertainment or to reality TV. And then you might get Netflix as well because the films are better or Amazon Prime because you want to watch whatever's on there it's kind of you don't just have one subscription now for those kinds of things so i don't think you'll end up having just one subscription for news there's that choice really it's that fragmentation of a, a brand like a telegraph and then what's within that brand lots of little brands mm. and then the reader of the audience has so much choice how does that make it really hard for journalists then or do you think it's a real positive and do you think also the reader is trying to curate their persona by saying, these are my subscription world, mm. this is what I'm interested in? 
I think it's, if you're looking at it positively, it'd be, you know, it's a sea of opportunity to grow loads of different communities, and it is definitely that. Um, but then we know that people in news only tend to have one news subscription, mm. maybe two, usually one. It's a trust thing, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, if you're, that means that if you are going to have people only subscribe for, say, that's used cars as an example, then your cars output better be banging because you're going to be charging people the same as people who want to read the whole thing. So, and I think how you express what that section looks like is very much social, you know, kind of, even behind a paywall, you have to tell quite a bit more of the story to pull people in, you know, because you, you, you want them to, you, you don't just want them to even click in, read it, click off. You want them to click into the story, perform an action, register or subscribe, um, and then, or log in, whatever it is. Like, you, you're asking them to do quite a lot. And to that end, it either needs to look really tempting when you get there but without being kind of baity so that you don't get the full answer or you need to have had enough of a sense of what that story was like from a different place probably social before you do that that's a really complex job for you then what what have you found has really worked to pull people in and pull those subscriptions through social i think going well yeah 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 i think um I, I hate to say it, but I'm going to anyway. It's very American, but leaning into a theme is always super helpful. Um, kind of picking a few things that you're really good at and kind of not over-promising and under-delivering on them. Um, we use a lot of Twitter threads now to pull out more of a story. We're experimenting with Instagram carousels on what they might look like, which elements of the story they might have in them, how you kind of might tease that out a bit more. Um, so yeah, trying to tell stories better and not sort of relying on just a headline alone to do it, because often it, unless it's an, unless it's brilliant, then it's just a great story and it would do well, you know. You have Anywhere, to access anytime. some visual, don't you? You absolutely need some sort of visual as mm, well. Yeah. And we use a lot of charts and graphs to kind of, where we've got difficult Brexit stories or we, we've been using increasingly more kind of video stuff to um, have that full multimedia experience and trying to bring stories to life through Instagram stories, kind of Q&As, but um, having the person who the story's about tell a bit more of it. So we're trying a lot of different ways, I think, to kind of both to make on an, on a story by story level, make things as best as they can be, but also um, then making that whole output seem like it's worth subscribing for. It is hard. I, I give up on things when I click through on social and it's like, oh, it's the, mm. the paywall. Um, what do you think has been some of the successes? Do the columnists? kind of work well because people are like well I'm interested in their opinion I want to hear from this person yeah the columnists definitely do especially you know where they've got they've built their own followings on social and that so Bryony Gordon's a good example yeah 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 um, Bryony's a really good example of kind of a columnist having fans and people going to 
So I, I through social or just through telegraph.co.uk to read what they think about a thing. Um, that's really effective. Uh, our sports writers as well, really strong followings, especially um, where they're club based um, and, you know, have great stories, but also great followings and people who care about what they think, which I think is really important. And then beyond that, I think, you know, we've done a lot of data around how many times do you have to hit a paywall before you'll realise that you've done it a lot of times and it might be worth subscribing. Um, and is that different when you come from Twitter? Is it different when you come from Facebook? Like what are the, what are the pathways and triggers in a, in a day sense around how you're making your journey to a subscription? And then are you starting a trial or are you, are you dropping off after 30 days or are you staying a year? There's quite a lot. It's a big old data set here. Um, How useful is Facebook these days for, for news and for the Telegraph? Um, I think Facebook has got a lot to answer for. Um, I think the move to meaningful engagement has been... Um, I can see what it was for, but it is a system that is so easy to gain. Meaningful engagement is comments on things. What what do the most people comment on things that they're angry about, right? And so you, while it might have been, and it always seems the way with Facebook, while it might have been well-intentioned, what you've actually created is polarization. You know, there are a lot of news organizations that don't post anything on Facebook anymore that aren't going to get any comments, right? And so what news have you got on Facebook? The most volatile, divisive types of news. And, and then look at our politics. Yeah, it's right. worrying. So, you know, I'm not going to post anything on Facebook that no, no one's going to comment on or share. And that, that has got to be at an end of the spectrum. It's not people, it's not, they're not stories that people don't care about. Because if stories that people don't care about don't get commented on or shared, um, you can look at, you know, the most, how much the most shared Facebook stories has changed over time. Mm. You know, I remember when the Manchester Evening News got in the same, list as the New York Times and that was like firstly incredible just an incredible thing to be able to say for the rest of your life but you know you look at it now and it, it's not news organizations that are in there or if it is you know they're not traditional ones and is that in a good way or a bad way that I'll let you look it up and decide but um it's not a good change. And I, and I would be saying that even if it was bringing in the same traffic, I think, you know, everyone's, everyone's well aware of what a shift that was. But I really don't think that in terms of the news that I see on my newsfeed, it's good. Um, people are still on there. They're still reading news. And for as long as they'll read news and engage with it, then I guess it will still be on there. I'm kind of interested in what they might do with a news tab. Yeah, I don't understand. Um, no, I don't. I don't know. I guess it's very early days, and so they because they're going through publishers with this proposition, aren't they? Mm. I guess it's early days. Is the Telegraph using quite a few groups as well? Isn't it? Yeah. How are you finding those? Um, I think good. So they don't exactly fall under my team; they fall under communities, but um, okay. we're with them quite closely. And um, they sort of, the groups have had varying degrees of success. 
Um, basically, from what I gather, the more you put into them, the more you get out of them. Like the better setup it is from the start with people who agree to post and talk to try and kick that off, um, the better it becomes, and the more often you kind of try and guide that conversation and get the right people in. Um, they can definitely stagnate and just fall off the radar forever. I do find that's what I I see groups when I first go on Facebook on my phone when I go on. I definitely see groups. I still find that's the algorithm mm. they use things. It can be really powerful. I agree with you. You're at the mercy of like your core group whether they kind of do something with that. And then to Twitter, is Twitter really working? Yeah. It, yeah, and it works at an individual level and um, kind of at a brand level. I think as an individual star reporters and columnists yeah, with yeah, their followers, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think um, it's a kind of a, a better suited platform for the Telegraph. Like we've got a lot of politics, we've got a lot of opinion, and so um, and a lot of people with a lot of opinions. So it kind of um, works. It kind of works in a, in a way, and you know, a lot of sport. You know, one of our key pillars. You know. All the people who like sport are on that are talking about sport. Um, so it's kind of an, a nice um, blend for what we do, I think. And is Instagram, Royal Family, any, and fashion, mm-hmm. any other sections that have been working well on there? So we've got the main at Telegraph account, which has brought in a younger audience for us. Um, and people, you know, register and subscribe from that, from there. And we're building a pretty good audience around that. Um, spent quite a lot of time thinking about how we should do it and what the split of stories and photos should be and how we're going to tell those stories. Um, we've got loads of different accounts. Stella Magazine's got an account that does really well for a lot of the, um, women focused lifestyle stuff, um, which does really well. On the main accounts, what is that split between stories? And main feed. What um, what did you what the what did the discussions kind of lead to then? What makes what really should end up in the stories? Is it something? Is it a bit like a Twitter thread almost? A run of stories. I guess so. So we tried it in loads of different ways. We've tried like story swipe up, story swipe up. You know, just consecutively. Um, we've tried telling longer stories across what would effectively be an edition, more like Snap. We tried telling shorter stories. I wouldn't say we've got a nailed on story strategy at the moment. We've got a core audience of people who watch them, but the kind of, um, the new audiences of people who, um, don't engage with stories is a bit harder to tap. So, um, we definitely spend a lot more time focusing on the grid and on those kinds of posts, um, with more of an experimental kind of Oh, this might be good for Instagram stories. IGTV has really, really taken off for us in the last month, maybe two months. So, what kind of video are you posting on there? Is it kind of news video, or is it more more stuff that explains the Telegraph as a brand? Is kind of it's mostly news video. So, um, we've had a few successes, even with kind of like Boris Johnson political video as well. You know, and that's kind of what me what makes me think it's an algorithm change because stuff that uh, stuff is massively over-indexing on there. You know, and whenever you see, if you see, I think in social a change that is too good to be true, 
It is too good to be true. Like there is there is no other reason. I think we've got the headline. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that um the more video I'm putting in my stories, I'm just me on an individual level. The more I'm getting new people come to my stories, so they're clearly pushing video massively, mm. they're pushing video so I tell people now like put video in your stories and you're you're probably getting pushed on the discover tab. Mm. You're probably not in the first couple of squares. But people love to scroll. They're, they're, that's how they're finding you. I'm getting fly-by people. Some people are staying. Mm. It's just utterly fascinating. I love it with stories. You can just see everyone. IG, I've not been trying recently. Um, so it's for longer video, would you say? Yeah, or? a minute to... How long can you have on there? Not sure. A minute to very long. You can have, yeah. Like, I don't see anyone like sitting yeah. on Instagram. I, it's funny, you know, I think it's... An interesting watching four videos on your phone is a really interesting concept because um I would never have thought people would do it. But um my T V broke recently and so I started to watch Netflix on my phone and I realised if you just put it not that far from your face, basically the same as having a TV and it wasn't awful. I would never have done that. I'm like a bit too old to be a person who watches T V on the phone. But um, actually, I can see it. I can see why they thought it was a good idea. People spend, I think, a lot of time on Instagram stories. Like anecdotally, I watch the stories of people that I've never met, friends of friends. I could stay there for hours watching about their lives. I think that is different to watching yeah. a single three-minute video. Yeah. Um, but I can see why they, why Facebook have gone. Okay, if this, if you're spending. 10 hours in stories a day, then you must want to watch vertical video. But I actually think, like, what I like about stories is the, the diversity of, yeah. you know, you can get bored of someone and you can just get out of it straight away. What's next? And they really speak to that attention deficit that we've all got, I think. And there's much more of a, you get a sense of a personality behind stories very quickly. Mm. Like, it's, yeah, story, stories just, works as something in human psychology it just mm. works on you and they are completely addictive yeah they are I, I and i you know i've lost hours recently it's just like i say people that are literally people i don't care about at all and you know here i am watching them at the thermal baths and you know. everyone being on holiday how, how do you think brands can use stories do you think it's it's good to show behind the scenes is that like a really large part of it like this or like showing, yeah, yeah. What do you think? We do you don't think do so it? much of the behind the scenes stuff. Um, we do a lot of kind of drawn out storytelling or trying to use different bits of multimedia. One of the things that we've done a lot with women's sport is um, takeovers of all the different teams, which has been great for growth, but actually just great for women's sport. And what you find is um, you get way more access. The people that you deal with are, um, generally speaking, much more open to what you want them to do. They get it straight away because they're all, you know, good at social. Themselves. Yeah, they're all good at social. So you say, "Why don't you tell me like what you've had for breakfast till like game day, like in the changing room?" And you just get this insight because they're always doing it for themselves all the time. So it's what they're picking up quicker than some of the journalists you've encountered along the way. We're not saying which specific newsroom. Um, yeah, I think they're, they're just more, it's just how they document their life and therefore that is so ingrained in them to be able to say, okay, when you do a takeover, this is like kind of what, like just, you know, we often say to people just act like you're on your own account and they really get it then. 
Um, who's who's had some good socialing when they've taken over? Are there any when you can remember the names of who? We've had a couple of really good football teams, um, and a couple of really good rugby teams as well. And the best ones have been the kind of the stuff you definitely wouldn't get. So like you know just before going out or like you know team talks or the kind of inside the locker room chat like that that's just stuff you just would not get and, and the other thing is because of like women's sports rights you often get a lot more kind of you know if no one's bought the rights to the game you can do a lot more kind of out there we can hardly do anything with men's sport because you tied into massive contracts and you know if you break them you sue so it's been it's been good. I think I think the Telegraph Women's Sport um, has been really positive for us on social, and we've been able to do a lot of stuff that we might not otherwise have done, like the access. And um, we've got a really good team on Women's Sport who basically, you know, I helped set up the launch and you know, kind of got everything sorted, ready to go the first few posts and then gave it to them and was like, well, whatever you want to do with it, like, you're the women's sport team, make it make it your own and they've done a really, really good job. It's kind of been the summer of women's sport, it's like this tipping point and then this this year it's like, right, we're behind the mm. lionesses. Um, it's been really huge and it's it really interesting what you say about the rights because this is a moment in time, they'll go those rights, they mm. will get bought up, women's sport is going in that direction mm. so we've got this really sweet spot at the moment but it's still accessible. Yeah. But it's you can see it's on its upward trajectory. And a lot of goodwill from a lot of teams who mm. kind of, you know, one one of the things that was when we first started talking about Telegraph Women's Sport, one of the things that I think people here didn't want to happen was that it was another one of those things. Like, oh yeah, you come around every every other year and you say you're going to do loads of coverage and you say you're going to do, like, you promise us the earth and we never see you again. And I think that is the thing this summer that has really changed. Like, it, it's not, you know, every it's not every now and then someone dips their toe into like, oh, what are these netballers up to? You know, it's a real kind of sustained attempt to... A, get more people to watch it, get more people interested, get more people down there. And I think it is, I think it is working. Definitely have seen a lot more people talking, say, for example, after the World Cup and going into this new season about women's football. Just, you know, from my, on my own personal Twitter, more people talking about like who the signings are and all of that stuff. So I think it's really positive. It is all about kind of, trying to find these different ways to connect with people and get them to understand that story and sometimes that might be a great headline but sometimes it might be you know a Q&A about whatever it is or like a you know an Instagram video Q&A or kind of a piece of camera to tell someone's story or a video you know video and social video is particularly powerful here in terms of telling those stories. Um, and having people relate to them because once you can see someone, as you say, you kind of can understand them a little bit more. You know, they're not just a headline, they're not just a picture, not just an anonymous voice. It is, it's someone telling their own story as well. It's not a journalist who might have preconceived notions of that mm. person writing for them. And then, do you think, in terms of the Telegraph's podcast offering, do you think that offers this intimacy? Um, 
in a similar way. I feel like podcasts and social and newsletters tend to go together very nicely in that mm. way because you build a voice you act like you're speaking to one person, even though you're speaking to a lot of people. And it also develops a sense of what the brand of the Telegraph is. So do you yeah. think podcasts are kind of slotted in in that way? I think so. And I think, um, you know, we do all kinds, all different kinds. You know, we'll do a strictly podcast and kind of get people in. That's more of a round table thing or have um, Chopper's Brexit podcast and just have him interviewing people sometimes. We'll get a few more people in, but I definitely think he... I know I know Chris Hope can get anyone to say anything anyway. He's a great interviewer, but I'm sure that, you know, having that uh, that length of time, you know, fully recorded um, is really beneficial. And the other thing is, you know, if you work in newspapers, you're going to have an interview with someone and then you're going to go away and you can write what you want. In a podcast situation... You're, no matter how good the interviewer is, you're in control of it. And you are saying, you know, like me now, like, I'm okay, I'm thinking, like, don't say anything stupid. But, you know, I'm also, I also know that you can't manipulate what I'm saying to you. Well, you could if you. It'd be much harder to. <laughs> I can't paraphrase you. I have to edit exactly right. your words. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And even if you do them in a different order, you know, as long as I'm not saying anything like too outlandish. Yeah, that's on the Patreon. <laughs> if you wanted to dedicate enough of your time to it, you could do cassette boy. But um, yeah, I think that is. I think that makes it more real, and it definitely does. You know, in that. I think the other thing is the beauty of, and I'm thinking now of things like the Hilo of just listening in. You know, you're just you're literally listening to people talk. Who doesn't like listening to people talk? overhearing them you know like and having that as a whole conversation and kind of thinking oh well like I've listened to these two people and this is what they both think and now, now I'm going to make up my mind as to what I think having had all that information because kind of being a being part of the digital audience is quite a silent activity otherwise and it, is, mm. it can be isolated it can just be you know one of us looking at a phone one of us looking at a laptop and I think there's this sense of community you get very strongly with a voice on a podcast, even mm. though it's not two-way, social is two-way. With social, we haven't got yet sharing voice easily. We will get there. Yeah. And that'd be very interesting. Yeah. And, and if you look at, you know, if you watch any kind of 16 to 18-year-old now, like, you know, they're using voice notes. They're sending each other voice notes. That You know, we, we do work with Amazon and Google and smart speakers, but, you know, we, there is... There is possibly going to be a world where all we do is listen and talk and listen and talk. And that's, you know, it is what's happening at the moment. The voice notes thing is really like, mostly everyone does not want to pick up the phone and speak or get scared when you get a phone yeah. call coming through. But voice notes are much more fun. It's much more fun to get one. It's much more intimate than a WhatsApp yeah. chat. Um, and what is it? Is it knowing that you can take it back? Or is it knowing that you could listen to it back? I, I don't know. Like, why is that better than phoning someone? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's really, yeah. I just, just want to broadcast you. Yeah. And it's a time thing as well, isn't it? It's like, so like, like scheduled TV is beyond me. I can't watch anything on a schedule. I, mm. It's on demand. And a voice note is on demand as opposed to a phone call, which is like, no, I can't possibly pick it up now. I'm in a Netflix binge. Yeah. I'm pretending I'm on my way by M10 minutes. It's, <laughs> Yeah, we're now kind of all the, in these individual little lives. Yeah. With ours kind of, with our relationship to, our, to the internet. And yeah, I'll, I'll pick your voice note up. I mean, let's be honest, it's a voice note. 
There's a voicemail without the preamble, but it's yet it's easier to find. You don't need the number that you've lost from three years ago, but it's on demand. And I think yeah, oh, yeah. we and demand on demand now. You can sort of expect that you know it'll probably be funny. I don't know why, yeah. but you can. But you know, no one's gonna waste or possibly very affectionate. Yeah, or very I mean, in depth. Like yeah. there's going to be some feeling to it. Yes. Otherwise, it's they not like bother. social, isn't it? Yeah. It's provoking emotion in you. So you're going to wait until like, maybe no one's no one's watching you, mm. or like you're not in a group, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's you kind are. of exciting to get, isn't it? So my, my, one of my mates sent one in a group the other day, and I just I just said, "Is this safe for work?" No. And so you just know that, and I knew all day, like, this is, it, like, I've got this voice now, I need to listen to it, I know it's going to be really funny, I can't listen to it here. Um, and the other thing is, you know, with podcasts, I think it's the only thing that we do whereby you could be doing something else. Absolutely. And that's super important. It means if you have a larger audience, um, so anything with visual, the audience can't be doing a second thing. Mm. You have an audience who can be running, who could be travelling, um, any physical activity and in fact I have to be doing something physical or I'm falling asleep to a podcast and yeah. that's fine but then I have to listen to the podcast again yeah so if I'm motionless I can't I can't just sit there unless I'm on a bus or train what's worked so well with snapchat what's what's McKenna been doing <laughs> well you've got um sending your dog face to every single subscriber yeah no you've got, <laughs> so Jasper Vulture is the head of snapchat um and so who's that? Jasper Fulcher. Yep. Who's the head of Snapchat. Um, so on Snapchat, we have more than a million subscribers now, which is great um, to break through. And we generally don't commission that much content that we don't already do. So it's not like a whole different version. It's just a really well curated kind of edition of things that that audience might be interested in and that's like all different kinds of subjects you know from brexit explainers where i think we would commission actually kind of a, a not an easier read but you know in the telegraph.co.uk sense we're quite far on with that story so sometimes you have to pull it back a bit um a lot of first person pieces a lot of kind of issue based stuff like um loads of different types of news like tech business fashion it's really you know the top kind of five or six stories for that audience and in a way that's the only place that that collection would surface so it doesn't sit anywhere on the website you can't call it like teeny graph as much as i would want to and like have it there um it, it doesn't it really work for instagram it, it doesn't work for facebook you know it's a real kind of that set of stories only works for this audience and nailing down what that is and how you tell it and just doing it every day is kind of you know and then you can start putting things in that you know you're not sure they'll like and how you kind of broaden their thinking about things we have some great feedback on our um on our snap editions actually and do you think um it needs to be visual but also have moving parts in it it needs mm -hmm. to keep the eye moving around the screen and you need, like, you need that on Snapchat as opposed to the other uh, Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, we tried um, putting some of our snaps on Instagram stories and it, the results were super mixed. So uh, they're so well done that they look a bit like ads. That's a real problem. They don't use the native uh, Instagram tools, which is also quite a big problem. 
Um, but yeah, they are all kind of lovingly crafted, animated, uh, you know, it's super jazzy. There's a really stripped back version of Snap you could do whereby you would just template it and everything would be still. But actually, um, it's definitely effective, really effective to kind of take a bit more care over it. I think you sort of either in or you're out with Snapchat. You, you know, like, you are, you are, you either love it or you don't. And if you don't, it can, it's really difficult to try and kind of force your way into. Because people who are on it, they are on it constantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, it can be an age thing. Obviously, it skews quite young. And it's at that period of your life, you do everything as a group. Yeah. So that's why it's like who in the group is doing what is putting out what and the idea of a of a streak is kind of friendships a streak is like you've been messaging each other every day for mm. however many days that friendship is impossible in your 30s yeah it's only possible when you're under 30 <laughs> that's true. and that's yeah that's just life stages mm. um i find that really interesting but yes i'm so far outside it that yeah I, it, I mean it is it is just one of those things i think you know, I've been in and out of it. I think probably the only time I'd go on it now is um, if on a different platform, I saw that they'd released something like um, where it made you look like a boy or it made you look like a... Remember that one? And then I would go into it and be like, oh, they've got a new filter. Yeah, and um, wait for Instagram to steal it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's great marketing for them because that must be how a lot of people get there. Um, but, you know, and you follow your circle, don't you? My, mine aren't on there. It's not how mm. we communicate. You're right, Facebook got me into Snapchat. Exactly, but it was Facebook. Yeah, and you, it's just, you know, it's just like I went on MSN Messenger because all of my friends were on there. You know, like it wasn't because I thought the platform was I wish brilliant. They still were. <laughs> it, it, it was, I didn't just turn up there thinking, what a great community, communicative platform. All my friends were on there. If you weren't on there, like, who were you? No one. And so you, that's just what it is with Snap. And it's just what it is with TikTok. And it always just will be. That's true. Yeah, I'm definitely off of TikTok. But I like the, the Twitter accounts, you know, curating the TikToks. Yeah. <laughs> that Curse is the oldest TikToks. way of thinking of TikTok ever. <laughs> I'm happy like, if it's on Twitter. People tell me. I've never <laughs> downloaded it. Do, when do you think the world will be ready for the resurgence of Vivo.com? <laughs> Uh, it's a great question. I think, you know. <laughs> it's my way to like read the room whenever I've done social training. Like, I just mentioned Bebo and just see what I get yeah, back. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I do that with MSN as well. And I think, <laughs> like, you just have to accept that while there were some, like, core principles that were really good. Thank like, you for taking this seriously. <laughs> <laughs> being able to sign in and out of MSN to get people to notice you. And I think having, I like, that. a top eight friends on myspace made everyone just a little bit more discerning also i learned html from myspace <laughs> and how to code i would never have known html at all if were it not for making my profile better and i think that is has really been while my parents thought i was wasting my time i have to disagree no the more computer skills you pick up younger the the better actually <laughs> i mean it'll be to pick it was like journalism or working in digital comms is going to be constant learning yeah now. it is and you've got to change your strategy all the time and trying and worse than that trying to manage a team and having to manage them in a different way every month is like a yeah. real art to say everything i told you last month forget it 
this is what we're doing. And, you know, and, and to do that without getting people to stop trusting in what you say um, is, is difficult, I think. What do you look for when you hire someone to your team? I think um, good ideas. I like um, work ethic. Just the just the will to you know a lot of this job is working with a lot of different departments, and some sometimes you know even now a lot of the time you have to drag it over the line. Nobody else is going to do it. Like you're coordinating five different teams who kind of might want to do what you want, but they might not. And so you, and you've got to get it out. It'd be, it's so easy to give up. I think a lot of resilience um, kind of determination is really important. And value those skills, you know, ab- above others, I think. I think it's a tough job being on the social team. And it's um, the volume of the work that comes through, because often newsrooms haven't accepted that a team should be a certain size. Mm. That size may well be rivaling the news team, for instance. Mm. And when, I don't know if we're always quite yeah, there in all newsrooms, but it's constant. It's constant information going mm. back and forth. It's, it's really tough. And I think unlike, you know, other roles in the newsroom, it's a real backroom staff job. Like, there's, there's, you do not get the same glory for being a social editor as you do for, you know, writing. You just don't. And, and, you know, a lot of the time, I think you're doing, you know, you're doing a really, really important job that's crucial to the dissemination of news. And, you know, no one's ever going to see your byline on it or, you know, like your mum doesn't understand what you do. It's like a whole thing. It's true, though, because then, depending on what you want to do in your career, and I, I mean, like, generally, you, not you personally, but someone might be locked into this and feel like, well, I want to do all of it mm. or and also if you only do one newsroom job these days do you stay as good or do you end up kind of in a silo so it, it, it can be a bit tough I think feeling like you're locking yourself out of other opportunities mm. on the plus side you can work across teams as you mentioned like mm. one person from the social team is quite young it's actually kind of suggesting things to much older reporters who are very established yeah. and really making their work better and making more people read it, which is yeah. super important, I think. Anyone who wouldn't want that. Like there's that, that balance that it's, it's still an invisible job to the reader, mm. which is a shame. Because um, often it's the thing that made it fly at yeah, the end of it. definitely. We haven't worked that out. Yeah. News, I, think. I think, you know, and as well, I think the good thing is that newsrooms are giving, like, internally, those people are getting the credit for for the impact that they have post-publication. Um, and for me, that's, you know, I've, I don't, I, I don't really want the, I don't really want my name on anything. <laughs> um, but that creates problems for me because, you know, it'd be really easy for anyone in here to turn around and say, you're not a proper journalist. And I think that's, you know, it's definitely not so much now, but when I was younger, something that I really had to, um, had to wrestle with and um, try and suss out what my worth was here. And as I've got older, I've sort of realised that it's, you know, pretty crucial. But but it's it's definitely difficult, I think. What's interesting, I've spoken to people who like work at LinkedIn, Jonah Geary's gone to Twitter, and they made these decisions to leave news and not be a journalist. And that, you can imagine, is tough. Mm. What's interesting is you're saying it's, it happens even within the newsroom that you're kind of going, well, I'm not going to be a news reporter for the next 
however many years mm. now, and that that career path may or may not be close to me because I'm doing social now. And we need to really look at what those career paths are in social within a newsroom because people might start losing hope. Mm. The thing is, is, this job is so important. I think it's much closer to commissioning and editing than it is to reporting because if you, you know, you you have all that uh, analysis and all that data, you actually, and you know, I do it a lot here, you can start saying, okay, well, I think we should write this or, you know, like, we know this is going to be trending, what, like, whatever it is. That's like, quite a powerful we, job. We, yeah. If people buy into it, which I think more and more people do in these Yeah, and nobody has ever said, you know, a real journalist. I don't know if people like it, but that's it. <laughs> so I'm happy with it. No, don't, think, don't at me. <laughs> no, if there's one thing journalists love saying to each other, which is that. <laughs> and and it, that is made more problematic by the fact that social is often staffed by women. And that is a weird kind of tension you can get in how the news industry is changing. Mm. It's nice to hear that's not being said. I, I agree with you that, yeah, I think social is more, you've moved up to the editing, commissioning, suggesting content that would work, and then putting that content out there in the way that would work. Mm. Um, but most newsrooms haven't formalised that this is an editing job. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, what would be your three top tips? Don't let the small things get away, get in the way of the big thing. You know, like in newsrooms, so many things piss you off. Like, and every experience, um, you can't let it get in the way. You just have to brush it up. But it happens. You know, you've got to get to the, got to get it over the line. You've got to get to the end. Um, I think having self confidence is really important in a newsroom. I think you know, if you don't have it, fake it till you make it. I did. You know, like I might have been terrified when I walked into the end. I know Kaylee might have noticed, but you know, like you just got got to take up all the space that you're given, and you know, you have every right to be there as much as anyone else. That's really important. Um. And I think the third is probably just to kind of dream big and aim high. I think, you know, we're, we're in a really interesting time for journalism. No one really knows what's going to happen. Like the, the thing that will make it better, make it work, make it sustainable is like big, bold, creative ideas. Like don't let anyone's kind of old school, limited vision dampen that. So thanks to Beth Ashton for inviting me over to the Telegraph to sit in a dark room with her. That was really fun. Um, we should have moved around more to keep the motion sensors happy. But um, it was great to have so much of her time and to hear such great details about how the Telegraph does social media. If you enjoy the podcast, please do rate, review and subscribe over on Apple Podcasts and why not tell a friend too? This helps our community grow and that enables me to keep making freelance pods.